This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Emma Graney, and this is the Trolls Trade and Trainwrecks edition. It's going to be lots of fun. And with me today, Stuart Thompson. Hey. How you doing? I'm fantastic. Excellent. I stopped calling you Tomo. I know. It's because you started calling Graham Tomo and then there was two Tomos. Oh, yeah, it's just confusing. Yeah. Well, he's not here today, so Tomo it is. Deal. Paula Simons. Hello. And Keith Geryne. Hello. Who has a bit of a cold. Yeah, I don't sound like myself. Not really. You really <laughs> don't. I really don't. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you for coming in, though. Because one of the things we're going to be talking about is, of course, something that you worked very long and hard on, which is about threats that were made against uh, premiers in Alberta. Geez, that was a long thing. It was two and a half years. Anyway. It, it took a long time, yeah. <laughs> Far too long of your life, I would say. Yes. To hazard a guess there. Um, we're also going to talk about CETA approval and what it means for Alberta. And of course, which seems to come up every week, the uh, runaway train wreck that is the ever-changing PC leadership race that constantly has me looking at Twitter going, you what? Say what? Are you kidding? I do that a lot. You must hear it a lot oh, I can, in my office. I can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start off though, Keith, uh, with your piece on uh, threats that have been made against Alberta premiers. Now, I remember when I actually first started working at The Ledge, that was in... I think April, and you kind of said to me, hey, so I've had this uh, FOI in for quite some time. Um, are you got anything similar in? I'm like, no, I've been in the province two weeks. <laughs> so then you kind of said, okay, well, I'm still waiting. So if you hear anything, let me know. <laughs> and um, tell me what exactly happened here. The, the whole process and how to get get these records. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in a nutshell. Keith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually submitted a Freedom of Information request, I think, back in the spring of 2014. This was shortly after Alison Redford resigned. And my thought at the time was that Alison Redford had displayed some behavior that maybe suggested she was a little concerned about her security. There's some things about uh, her plane travel, taking slower government jets instead of commercial aircraft. Uh, we knew there was some uh, uh, deals with the Calgary Police Service to protect her when she was in Calgary. Uh, even the, the Sky Palace, the... Um, top floor of the federal building, uh, there was a, supposedly a private elevator and space for her security team right below that apartment in the Sky Palace. So things like that that seemed uh, that she was quite concerned about her security. Uh, little did I know it was going to take two and a half years before I, I kind of got some records. Um, the Al Alberta Justice initially denied my FOIP request after eight months. After eight months, they did, they got back to me eight months after I submitted the original request. They, said they, we they have a thirty day deadline. Just, I know, so just so we're days. clear. So they were seven months late. <laughs> seven months late, and told me they couldn't disclose anything. Uh, so I had to take it to the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner. Uh, there were some negotiations there, and eventually they relented and released partial records. Be but because it took so long, those records were really out of date by that point. So I waited another year to get updated records, which were re released to me finally in January. You are so patient. 
Yeah, I was I was a little concerned I wasn't still going to be employed as a journalist by the time this. Because <laughs> yeah, actually... you, you filed this when you were still at the legislature. I did. Yeah, you've been back here for a long time. I know it's been a long. Time. <laughs> the outcome of this was that Rachel Notley seems to have had a lot more threats than former premiers, but that's not just the the whole story, is it? I mean, the numbers were changing in terms of how they were recorded, right? Yeah, so starting in 2016, the government changed its process, I guess, of tracking threats to do more proactive monitoring of social media. I'm not sure why they chose the start of 2016 to do that. Uh, I guess you could argue that it should have happened earlier, but certainly that was the time that they did. And because of that, the number of threats for 2016 went up substantially. I think it was a 412 or something that were reported to them that year. And 26 of those cases had to be uh, forwarded to police as they approached a criminal threshold. Did these numbers, when you finally got them, did they surprise you at all? A little bit. Uh, I mean, I think just monitoring social media and, and even our own email accounts and and Facebook pages, uh, there has been an increase since Notley took office. I think anecdotally, we could all say that, that there does seem to be an increase in extreme language in those sort of threatening language that we've seen on social media. So uh, it didn't surprise me that there was an increase when Notley came to office. It did surprise me the actual numbers, though. They, uh, they are quite substantial. And I think, you know, it has to be said, so, you know, 400-ish of those are jerks blowing off steam. Howlers. I love the phrase that one of your experts called them, the how howlers versus the hunters. But 26 of those were serious enough to refer to police for investigation. I mean, that's much more troubling uh, as a, you know, as a percentage. I mean, in my whole career as a journalist, I've received all kinds of, you know, nasty things. Only two have we ever sent to the police for follow-up investigation. So the fact that 26 of them were judged by the sheriff's office and and the, and the security staff to be serious enough to warrant a criminal you know follow up. Yeah, that's very disturbing. Remember that bloke in Saskatchewan? I mean, in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan too. He was arrested for making a threat against Justin Trudeau on and, and convict, social media and, and convicted just yeah. this week. Yeah, it is. It's interesting too because I was we were doing some reaction to Keith's piece right, at, at yeah. the legislature, and you know, it is it interesting to talk to the different politicians and. Uh, I did find that m- maybe this is just a small sample size, but I did find that the female politicians I spoke to ha- seemed to have already thought about this a lot when they answered, and the men maybe didn't. It was kind of something they were sort of articulating in the moment. Um, uh, and I think maybe the most interesting person was Shannon Phillips, who uh, you know I send a, a I just blasted out emails to people, and one was to Phillips, who I know has gotten some threats and. Her press person said she'll be in your office in five, (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty rare. Like we have a little hovel downstairs and they don't, (laughs) it's not unheard of that a politician would come down there, but I think they avoid it at all costs. And so I was kind of thinking, well, that's interesting. And Shannon Phillips is a pretty intense person on a good day. And having her, you know, three feet from my face telling me about threats to her family, uh, it really brought it home. And she told me that, you know, this was the Wednesday we were talking to her, and or no, it was Tuesday, and she was saying on that Sunday, two days before, she uh, didn't go to the grocery store, didn't go to the library with her kids, which is a Sunday tradition because of threats that were made to her at her Lethbridge office. And that kind of thing, I mean, she doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would, you know, let frivolous threats get to her. She strikes me as someone who, you know, it would be a very serious thing. She to plays st- roller derby. I was going to yeah. say, she's a Debbie girl. <laughs> and I, I think that it, that really brought it home to me that this is affecting not just, 
the, the way her work life is, but it's affecting how she feels about her kids, and it's affecting how she goes about her daily life. And the other that that was just a, something that brought it home to me that day. But the second thing that did too is we were trying to get the premiere for some reaction that day, just to see yeah. you know what what her reaction to this whole story was and. Um, somebody in the premier's office told me we would never do that. We don't talk about security. And part of the reason we don't is because every time we talk about it, no matter what the tone of the story, no matter if it's like the piece that Emma and I did on Tuesday, which is just six politicians roundly condemning it and a a very um, kind of negative tone towards the threats, it doesn't matter. If it's a story about threats, the threats will go up. They're going to get threats based on that story. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. On Monday... My dad was having surgery, and so I didn't come into the office, but I saw Keith's story. I knew he'd been working on it, and I tweeted it out before I left for the hospital. And then I was not on social media much. And the the number of absolutely vile comments that I got back at me as a female journalist, uh, people saying over and over again, she deserves it. She deserves it. She's brought it on herself again and again and again. And... I, I'm i not naive about trolls on social media, but this was truly extraordinary. That when I tweeted it out, you know, without a lot of commentary, because I was rushing off to the hospital, um, the amount of blowback from people who seem to think that because they don't agree with somebody's tax policy, uh, that it is okay to threaten to kill and rape them. I mean, this is, and this goes beyond just not being nice on Twitter. This isn't about mean tweets, you know. Uh, This isn't about being all, you know, sensitive and vulnerable. This is, this is, this is a, a kind of political terrorism. I mean, if you've got people who are afraid to leave their homes, who are afraid to, to make decisions that need to get made, and let it be said, I mean, this is not, something that only ever happened to Rachel Notley or only ever happened to Alison Redford. When Ed Stelmack was premier, um, he had a guy who was a little disturbed, um, who was convicted of threatening to kill his cows um, and threatening to damage his farm property. And, you know, that was a real thing. Um, Stelmack, I, I, I worked down at the ledge when Stelmack was premier. His security detail kept a very tight rein on him, which Stelmack didn't always appreciate. Um uh, it's it's tough to be in the public eye, and it's tough to put yourself out there and run the risk of these kinds of threats. But what's been happening um, in the last, uh, you know, 18, 24 months when Rachel Notley has been premier is absolutely beyond the pale. Doug Horner was telling me when I asked him at the unveiling of Dave Hancock's um, portrait. portrait. It was very nice, by the way, very sunshiny. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, uh, he looked very happy in that portrait. But Doug Horner was telling me once he got white powder sent in an envelope to his house as a threat being made. And he said these kind of letters made out of newspaper clippings. And he made the point too, as did other politicians I spoke with, that it's not just against them. It's about their family. Just who does that? Who threatens someone's family? If you don't like someone's policy, that's fine. That's all good and well. We're not supposed to all like each other's policy, right? I mean, that's the nature of democracy. But don't go around threatening people's kids. The thing is, it used to be that you could say, oh, well, it's a, it, you know, it's a couple of random wingnuts. All of us who put ourselves out there in public know that there are always going to be some random wingnuts. The problem is that we've sort of normalized this, that now people think nothing of it. And, you know, it, it's not just anonymous people posting these things. These are people posting on Facebook and Twitter with their names and their pictures and having no compunction whatsoever about engaging in the most vile 
kind of discourse on on public media platforms. Yeah, it's people, amazing, isn't it? Though I've always thought that people people will say stuff on Facebook. And they will have their name. They will have what company they work for. They'll yeah, have pictures, where they work. Pictures of their own kids. Oh, I mean, what the heck? There was a journalist. I, I can't remember. It must have been, I think it was anti-Semitic or some kind of threat from somebody who used their real name. And the, as we do, journalists Googled him and found his resume. And on his resume, it said something like, uh, great sense of humor and quick wit. <laughs> and he just sort of screenshotted the guy's resume back to him and then boom, his account was deleted. Like, he was gone immediately. Oh, wow. And this was kind of the funny thing about working on the web desk is, you know, I'm glad I don't have to do this anymore, but you would moderate the comments. And I'll, I'll never forget, like, I saw a lot of bad comments, but there was one which was sort of a run-of-the-mill comment about Danielle Smith. And it, there was some kind of, like, sexually tinged, gross nature to it. And I looked at the photo, and it looked like this kindly old grandpa and then I clicked on the picture and it was like this old guy who like had this adorable little wife and I was like my god can you imagine if that was your grandpa and you just happen to see his comment on Facebook like it's just bizarre to me that someone and I think also when you're dealing with older people they don't realize that maybe this will show up on their profile or people can trace it back to them but it is still just baffling to me that they would allow that to appear under their own name. Keith, any final thoughts? Well, it's just interesting to me, and maybe Paula and and Stuart, you have some thoughts on this, but what is driving this? Why is is it just Rachel Notley and the NDP being in power and Alberta not being used to it because we're more of a conservative province? Is it the rise of social media and people feeling uh, emboldened perhaps because of the the Trump effect? Is it the wild rose, as Dave Hancock says, that perhaps has, has ratcheted up the kind of extreme language that they're calling people cheats and liars uh, or have been in the past and that gets people riled up. What, what do you think is actually driving this, that, what we're seeing right now? Let it be said that some of this, uh, the really disgusting um, uh, response to Rachel Notley started long before Donald Trump won the Republican nomination. So we can't blame it all on Trump. Uh, but I do think that there is a zeitgeist out there that has licensed this kind of ugliness. Um, and it's coming from Trump. It's coming from Rebel Media and Ezra Levant. And I know that a lot of the people who swarm like that uh, are doing it uh, because they've been incited by the rebel and told, you know, go, go hone in on this person. Are there people out there who are angry and frightened because they've lost their jobs? Sure. There are people in Calgary, intelligent, professional, educated people who are have lost jobs that paid them six-figure salaries. There are people out there um, who are living much closer to the bone who have lost their jobs and who feel hopeless. And they are looking for a scapegoat. And international economic forces, the price of oil, um, you know, the, the world trade, it's hard to blame that. It's easier to blame a person. And so yeah. it's it's easier to, to scapegoat Rachel Notley. Some NDP policies have legitimately been flashpoints. And people can legitimately say they don't like the way the carbon tax is working, that it's not revenue neutral, that it's, you know, a, a sales tax by stealth. They can legitimately say that they that they don't approve of other policies the party has had, whether that's about workers' compensation for farm workers or about, um, you know, the phasing out of coal production. Uh, That said, none of those things should give anybody any excuse to threaten violence and insurrection. I mean, 
politics 101 i was reading about that rebel rally that i think it was there was about three or four conservative leadership candidates there a couple Mm. of days ago and there was one guy the one out east yeah and there was one guy calling for revolution and that's something i've heard a lot lately people saying we need a revolution the ndp is starting a carbon tax and I, it's just you know, I'm going to have that song in that in my head for the rest <laughs> of the day now. These people just need to read about a revolution. Just pick one. Just pick one revolution, like the U.S. Revolution, which was a, wasn't was a, a very violent revolution compared to, say, the French Revolution. But it's still like the second bloodiest war in the country's history. Revolutions are very bloody. So when you start to talk about things like this, that is totally unhinged from reality. The idea that you need a revolution to change a couple of policies that you don't like or... You need a revolution because there's two years until the election and the party that's in power, which is polling very poorly, too. So it's like two years and then you have a pretty good chance of getting them out of there. (laughs) It just this kind of extreme chatter. I think it, it happens on the Internet. I think the Internet has a very radicalizing force because you can kind of find that one area where you really care about of policy or cultural matters or whatever and make it your entire reason for being. So these are people, they're very single-issue people, but they're also very, like, us-and-them people. Yeah. And I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, it, it's hard to know what most of the electorate was thinking 20 years ago because you would mostly just see them in polling and in in the elections. You didn't get to see their tweets back Yeah, you'd then. see letters to the editor or, you yeah. know, you'd overhear words in the pub probably. And you'd say, that oh, that's a wingnut yeah. letter to the editor. But maybe there was more of those people out there than we realized, and it's just hard to know. I think the Internet gives a voice for this, and I think it does have a radicalizing effect in every area of the political spectrum, whether it's left, right, whether it's, like, you know, ex- um, radical Islam, people in you know, homegrown terrorism, that's internet radicalization sometimes. And I think it's just a a part of the internet. Let's switch gears now over to CETA. Now, Tomo, you wrote a story this week about, you were so excited about this story, Mm. actually. You're really excited to talk to like beef farmers and that? massively excited about my A6 story. But CETA's a big deal. CETA's a huge deal, right? Uh, Well, I mean, it's the biggest trade deal since NAFTA. And I would would class that as big. (laughs) I was having one of those moments where I was like, why isn't everybody else talking about this like maybe it's just the donald trump effect or you know the metro line was running at full speed in edmonton (laughs) so it's uh hard to really think about anything else but uh like the reason that i think it's a big deal and i'll make my case and the listeners can judge for themselves but um trade with the eu i think is increasingly important especially as you see protectionist chatter in the u.s we do i I think it's something like uh i want to say two billion dollars worth of uh beef trade in in the US and uh, that is a lot of money that's a that's a big market and that's one product and so I was talking to the beef producers this week and they were saying this EU trade deal we do six million dollars worth of trade right now with the EU could be six hundred million dollars if we can ramp it up to the point where this uh, trade deal allows which is likely actually so if they can really get it moving yeah and there's a lot at stake and there is oh, <laughs> oh wow oh, wow you've been oh, waiting for that one haven't we're, you we're, yes. we're gonna roast you for that <laughs> <laughs> okay to our two or three remaining listeners <laughs> i will say uh, but that and beef production is a small part of canadian trade with the eu and um alberta is actually the province that does the least trade with the eu so you can imagine this effect the effect this will have there was an eu canada study that said this could raise incomes in 
Canada by $1,000, just this trade deal. And that's a lot to do with the fact that when you open up trade, and I, uh, we have to also say that there are people who hate these trade deals because of um, it, it. For example, if you're importing cheese from France, which we're now allowed to do a lot more of, that will hurt cheese producers in Canada. And what economists will tell you is that, well, now we've opened up the market, so prices will be cheaper in Canada. People will have more income. So those job losses will be sort of leveled out by the fact that people will be spending more, which creates more jobs and tends to balance out that way. And it tends to make us come out ahead with free trade. And with French cheese. And with French cheese, which I know that a lot of people will be excited about. Um, I'm lactose intolerant, so it's not quite <laughs> as exciting to me. But I will say uh, it's, it's a big deal, and it, it could make a big difference to trade. And um, interestingly enough, wheat is the biggest thing, is the second biggest thing we trade with the EU. So I think that could be really important. Well, and if you think about this, I mean, and I think it's really important to say this at a time when Donald Trump is trumpeting protectionism. Yeah. Uh, Trade is really important, and we're a small country, not a small country geographically, but a small country in terms of population. Europe is a huge market. I mean, for us, we stand to be the net beneficiaries because we produce, I mean, we produce mustard seed that the French use to make mustard. We produce wheat, that Durham wheat that the Italians use to make pasta. I mean, we produce canola and corn, and we produce finished goods that, I mean, if we can have access to a European market, especially with Britain pulling out of the EU, uh, you know, this this is a potentially huge thing for us to have access to markets in Germany and the Netherlands and France, uh, you know, big countries that are, that have consumers who want to buy our products. Why wouldn't we want to be excited about this. And I think it was really important. Justin Trudeau uh, was uh, at the EU this week um, speaking in French and English about the importance of international trade and saying to the world that CETA could be a model. I mean, especially at a time when the Trans-Pacific Partnership is like, you know, that's that's done. Um, that, that deal is dead. So this was this was a huge win. And I have to say, you know, let it be said that this began under Stephen Harper. Uh, this has Eight been. Eight years it's been. Yeah, this is this is even worse. So much as long as Keith's been trying to get. You know, I mean, uh, uh, both the conservative and the liberal governments deserve credit for this. Harper, Har- Stephen Harper deserves credit for for doing all of the foundational work of this, and the liberals deserve credit for not. You know, for having being big enough to say, well, just because the other good government, idea, Steve, good, good <laughs> idea, Steve, um, and you know, I, I suppose somewhere Stephen Harper had a little pang in his heart that he wasn't the one at the <laughs> yeah. EU. Something to watch, um, actually. Um, the, if you you should read some of the quotes from Justin Trudeau in the EU Parliament and what the other EU leaders were saying. The Twitter term for it is a subtweet. When you say something about someone without saying their name, there was a lot of subtweeting about Donald Trump about climate change, about free trade, about how to be accepting of everyone. Handshakes. uh, Yeah, there was normal handshakes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a straight rebuke to Donald Trump. And of course, Uh, Trudeau has arrived just fresh on the heels of of a Donald Trump visit, which actually also interestingly, um, apparently Angela Merkel was looking for a debrief on his meeting with Donald Trump. So I would say, look at that. It's a very interesting dynamic. Look at the way Trump is talking about China and talking to China and imagine that dynamic playing out in Asia for Canada too. We obviously rely on the States a lot for trade, but 
there's I think there's only so much they can really do, especially if they're talking about tweaks to NAFTA. And then if we open up other markets, it's very important. And th- it sort of shows the limitations of this Trump bluster. You go in and you talk tough and you do a um, anti-terrorism raid in Yemen that blows up in your face. And now the Yemenis don't let you in their country anymore to do those raids. The tough talk sometimes loses that cooperation and it works the same in trade. So if this kind of thing keeps playing out over the next four years, it could create opportunities for a lot of other countries. O'Neill Callier and, of course, Darren Bellis have been huge on getting out to Asia again and again to get more trade and really try and get, well, try and get beef back allowed into our what's, career, which is a slow process. What's the name of the cow? Huh? What's the name of the cow? Oh, Rocky. Rocky. Yeah, the Rocky cow. is um, the name of the mascot <laughs> that Callier travelled with in Korea. Oh, he didn't travel with a cow. Okay, he travelled with, there was someone dressed as a cow. <laughs> <laughs> a beef cow who was giving out beef samples with a Neil Calais in uh, at a supermarket it's in a, Korea. It's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, because because really, do you want to eat the cow after you talk uh, to the cow? Yeah. It's the cow awkward. looked really happy, you know. <laughs> so obviously, it was okay with being at, and he was wearing dungarees. I don't know, but you know, I mean, having covered the the bovine sponge reform encephalopathy crisis i just like to prove you that i can yeah, say that, that. Yeah. Yeah. Ha- having covered the you know the mad cow uh, crisis here when the americans closed their borders to our beef and they just i mean they just slammed those doors shut without any justification under nafta or the wto or common sense you know it really drove home to me just how vulnerable we are if we're depending on one huge next door market uh, we need to be mindful of the fact uh, that there are protectionist forces, both Democrat and Republican in the United States, that that don't understand the value of world trade and don't understand uh, the value of, of Canadian product. And so anything that we can do to diversify our access to markets, whether that's for oil or wheat or beef or, uh, you know, vaccines or, or computer parts is is great for us. Yeah, and Stuart, I am glad you did that piece. One of the interesting parts of that uh, was right at the end where you did say in Europe, uh, Canadian beef could fetch a really, really good price. We think yeah. beef prices are high here, but in Europe, where they don't have a lot of land to have feedlots and big ranches for cattle, uh, it's, it's at a premium there to get beef. So, I mean, that, that is a really interesting uh, opportunity for Canada. Yeah, you don't have to ship as much and you make more money. Let's switch gears again to something that, yeah, we just keep talking about. It's a shame that Graham's not here today because <laughs> yeah. he loves talking his, about this. His leads on the PC leadership have gotten increasingly better. He just yeah. keeps trying to talk about Today he says, I, I used to call it a runaway train, and then I called it a runaway clown car, and now it's just a dumpster fire. A runaway, runaway dumpster, dumpster fire. And as, as Tomo pointed out, geez, Graham, it looks like you, you're just having to top yourself every day. And I said, you know what? It's like the PC party leadership race is topping itself every day. So it's that kind of really forcing Graham's hand on this. Um, so the latest twists and turns. Where do we even start with this? Well, um, I, I, you can you can look at this a few ways, and you know I haven't written about this, but I've been talking a lot about it <laughs> with a lot of people. And it does it chew up a lot of our day talking about this, doesn't it? Yeah. Down in the ledge, um, it's just it, so. I guess starting from square one, what's trying to happen is that what's happening is that Jason Kenney is um, something of a juggernaut in this race, and I think there's sort of a last minute panic going on before the actual leadership vote happens and i think there are now three factions in the pcs one is the piece is the kenny faction which is fine with him winning and they're all cool with the unite the right um or what is it unite principled conservatives or something they're 
they don't like the Unite the Right label. Yeah, but well, you know what? It rhymes, it so rhymes. they just have to deal with yeah, it. Yeah, it's catchy. Yeah. And the other faction <laughs> is the um, uh, Never Kenny faction, which just does not want Kenny to win, and they will do anything in their power to stop him. Anything but winning. Kenny. Yeah. ABK. Yeah. And then I think there's sort of um, a middle ground faction which says, well, we're not Kenny fans, but we don't want this to be a uh, runaway dumpster fire clown show. And they're trying to stop that from happening. And so it it was, it used to just be the two factions, but now I think there's a third one. What happened this week, of course, Jeffrey Rath, who was part of Starkey's campaign. And he's a, he's a lawyer from outside of Calgary, best known probably for his work on Aboriginal land claims, actually. I didn't know that. That's what I've interviewed Jeff Rath about in the past. So he is, um, he launched a formal complaint saying, you know what, Jason Kenney can't be allowed to run because uh, this, 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 and this, it's against the PC constitution. That he's, that he's, you know, demeaning the status of the party. Right. And not just because he wants to blow it up, but by saying, you know, by, by sort of airing the financial dirty laundry that, you know, Rath's argument is that Kenny has brought the party into disrepute. Exactly. And now the PC brass turned around and said, you know what? Nah, nah, not having a meeting, whatever, Rath. Uh, I'm obviously paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> now, but then some of the, not the actual uh, top layer of PC power, I'm going to call it, which is a note, the technical term, nobody call. Kind of this second level went, you know what? Three or four of them went, you know what? No. No, we've got to hear him out. We've got to hear Rath out. And while we're at it, we should hear Kenny out. He should have to defend himself. So let's have a meeting on Friday night in Red Deer and we're going to discuss this. So then Catherine O'Neill, the party president, turned around and went, no, nah, I'm overruling <laughs> your request to have a meeting that overruled our overruling of <laughs> Rath's letter. So that all happened and it's like, okay, so there isn't a meeting anymore. But then yesterday, Rath turned around <laughs> and launched a separate complaint about Kenny, used completely different terms of reference in the PC constitution. And has, so he's... That's the problem with lawyers, eh? He'll just find a different <laughs> subsection 7.1.3 this time or something like that. So he's launched another, <laughs> another complaint about Kenny and Kenny's team. And says he has the votes on the PC board to to have a meeting about this. Yeah. So basically at this point, they're trying to stop Kenny from running. The problem is when you try and stop Kenny from running, you kind of run the risk of looking a bit silly. Yeah. Well, I mean, Graham in his column said the opportunity was before he started running and after he wins the leadership race. And the opportunity comes after when you just gum up the works in the merger and that is a, is a possibility, and that is a way that you can sort of stymie this whole thing with the Wild Rose. And there's a, that, that is the non-clown show faction of the PC leadership. They're trying to do this in kind of a reasonable way afterwards. And then the second bit of this, too, is um, this notion of whether or not Jason Kenney really wants to dissolve <laughs> the other two parties. So I was speaking with his team yesterday, and the thought is... The ultimate plan is to have one united conservative party. That's your big, happy, big tent, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, we're united and conservative party. I just wrote that jingle. <laughs> you are welcome. But the problem there is, yeah, they don't want to have the remnants of the PCs and the Wild Rose, because if you do, you run the risk that they could run candidates, and you kind of end up with three conservative parties, which goes against the whole point of what Kenny's trying to do. Now, from my perspective as having lived in Saskatchewan, this actually happened there. So when the SAS party formed, it was uh, PCs and Liberals came together, formed a new party. 
But the Saskatchewan PC Party and the Saskatchewan Liberal Party still exist. They don't win seats, but they do run people. And in fact, the PC Party there um, and the SAS Party were in a legal battle for a decade over money that the PCs had. And you really do run the risk that if you don't wind up these parties, which is what Jason Kenney originally said, and I did have a 12-minute conversation yesterday with his team about whether or not wind up means the same as dissolve. <laughs> um, I contest it does. Uh, I've been told that they're not going to weigh in on what yeah. my interpretation of um, the English language is. But yeah, you do run that risk that if you still have these other parties in existence, they can still run candidates. Well, and you definitely have that risk in the sense that there are progressive conservatives, the red Tory elite of the, you know, the the from you know from Lougheed to Hancock, yeah. all of those red Tories are not very happy. And some of them are saying, well, you know, they'll quit, to which point the, you know, the, the Kenny people were like, good, fine, don't let the door hit you on the way out. So, you know, if you have, um, I saw people on Twitter referring today to, you know, Red Tories as fringe. And I thought, really? Dave Hancock is a fringe member of your party? Coolio. Um, <laughs> All he got is a new oil portrait, okay? Whatever. So, so you know, what happens uh, if those people, some of whom are the power brokers and the people who had the access to the money, uh, you know, the, to the corporate donors, uh, if if they kick over the traces and, uh, you know, uh, insist on creating their own party or keeping the progressive conservative name and still running, I mean, I, I don't know what happens because I know that the narrative that the Kenny camp is pitching is that we will all unite and then we will defeat Rachel Notley and the world will be good and peaceful and wonderful. But I, I, I that that's not that is not a guaranteed narrative. Oh, far from it. <laughs> it's Alberta politics. Nothing is guaranteed. Yeah. Surely we've learned that by now. <laughs> I, I would say two years ago when the NDP was first elected, the idea that anyone who was a red Tory would have anything to do with the NDP was absurd. And it is still absurd to me. I think it's still absurd to a lot of PCs who are in this awkward position right now. But I'm sure Emma can tell you that Rachel Notley and Dave Hancock seem to get along fine on Monday. And I think yeah. people in the premier's office, um, I, I, like, I think he's been offering advice, which is pretty standard for a previous premier to offer advice in how to like transition into the office. But if there's a level of comfort there and if the NDP continues to be the pipeline and economy party, if they can get the economy going up and they can keep tacking to the center, then I don't think that is abs as absurd as it was two years ago. And like, I think probably what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of different options. Like there's going to be a new party. There's going to be the remnants of the PC party. There's going to be this United Conservative Party. But It'll be interesting if more people like Sandra Jansen say, you know what, as far as it goes, I have more on the Venn diagram overlap with the NDP. I mean, this is the party. The NDP put out a Valentine this week. Oh, God. They had a picture of Rachel Notley. Oh, God. Said, I'm build building a pipeline to your heart, mm. um, at, at which point I think New Democrat heads in Ottawa kind of exploded. But it was it was <laughs> kind of awesome. Uh, and, and Stuart's right. If the NDP are the party See, of... you thought uh, my jokes about cedar and steak were lame? I don't know. Like, <laughs> Yeah, there's a double standard here. Yeah. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a great joke. I'm saying that... The, the, the great joke is to troll people on both the right <laughs> and the left by saying, hey, we're the Alberta NDP, the party of pipelines, so that, you know, that's, I mean, 
the Valentine in and of itself is not clever. The tactic is brilliant. <laughs> I, I mean, it is fun to speculate on what might happen, you know, heading into the next election. The PCs have to get through the next month with some sort of credibility. <laughs> so I don't know We're how getting that, out of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and I don't know what's going to happen okay. next. It just seems like every week there is something new. But, uh, but I mean, would sometimes you, every hour of the day, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. And I, I think increasingly this is less true. But there are people saying Jason Kenney doesn't care. I mean, the PC party, he's going to wind it up or dissolve it or do whatever he does to it, and it won't matter. But I do think that they, and I think they are starting to worry about this, but they should worry about how they come off. Like, is does this look like a campaign of pure destruction? And what does that look like to other voters? And what does that look like to Wild Rose members who say, what are you going to do to my party? And do you respect, do you disrespect my party the way you disrespect the PCs? And I think those are the kind of things people might be thinking. And if this gets too out of hand, which I admittedly, a lot of it is not Jason Kenney's fault. I mean, a lot of this is coming from outside, but that could harm him in the future. Alberta politics never change, you beautiful beast. Uh, <laughs> let's move to our regular segment now. Good stuff from the galleries. Tomo, what you got uh, for us, mate? Well, I've got a fantastic story. I'm pretty sure everybody who follows me on Twitter and who I follow on Twitter has read this because I've seen it on everywhere. But it's um, our former colleague and friend, Janet Pruden, wrote a story on the lawyer, Edmonton lawyer, Sean Beaver, who um, and this kind of just shows you the particular talent that Jana has, which is that if a lot of other reporters wrote this story, they would write about the evil lawyer who stole. And that would be a fair way to write this story. Um, but Jana did several interviews with him. She told the whole story and she told you what happened to this guy that sort of made this come about. And I don't think that you have a lot of sympathy for him, but you kind of have an understanding of it. And I think that's a really interesting place to take a feature. She's so good. Paula? Uh, In my attempt to be Trump-free this week, (laughs) I am going to recommend that people go to Theater Network to see their production of Bust, which was sort of billed as a a heart-rending play about Fort McMurray after the fire, which is what I was expecting when I got there, which is not what it is at all. It is a very absurdist black comedy. If you think sort of like Fargo or Blood Simple or Harold Pinter, Mm. in which... um, it's a kind of a surreal murder mystery with the most Alberta murder of all time. And I won't tell you what it is, because if you're going to go see the play, there are more plot twists than there are in the conservative leadership race. Oh, anyway, it is it is a crackerjack production that features everything from two-headed chickadees to a hockey bag that's oddly heavy. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's on uh it's on for another week at theater network uh which is now in the old catalyst theater space and so i recommend that sounds good i am taking you down to australia this week kind of in a way so one of them is on abc news it's an amusing somewhat tongue in cheek look at the power of handshakes um <laughs> it does star canada's very own justin trudeau it's called um Donald Trump's handshake making America great. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, and also, just briefly, the Sydney Morning Herald did a really great <laughs> name generator. It's called Spicerize My Name. What the White House press secretary Sean Spicer would call you. This so is that- af- after he called. Uh- he called him Joe Trudeau, yeah, sort and, of. And he also messed up the Australian Prime Minister's name. So uh, for the record, I'm now Manuel Grandad. Uh. So um, <laughs> if you could address me as such from now on, that'd be great. Keith? Uh, thank you, Emmanuel. Um, <laughs> 
So I am not Trump free this week. Uh, I don't know how people take me seriously with this voice right now. But uh, uh, the piece is called How Jared Kushner Won Trump the White House. Uh, it's uh, from Forbes. It's actually a recommendation from our former colleague, Karen Cleese. And it has to do with uh, Jared Kushner's uh, social media strategy during the, the Trump campaign and how they delivered very specific messages to very specific communities and got them onto Trump's side. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting. It's also very disturbing and I think has some lessons for future Canadian political campaigns as well, including uh, the rebels' influence in Canadian politics as well and how they deliver messages to very specific groups in the country. Nice. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Stuart, Paula, Porsett, Keith, and Ian as well, our uh, amazing videographer. Thank you for joining us and um, filming a little bit of this to put online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all of our episodes of the Press Gallery. You can also sign up to our uh, SoundCloud channel, iTunes or TuneIn Radio as well. So I hope you can join us again this time next week here at the Press Gallery.